Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Let me give you the context within this, within which this book was written. Paul, of course, as you know, has been called by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He's planted numerous churches um, throughout the Aegean Sea regions. Thousands have come to faith in Christ. And the early church has got some problems, though. And one of the problems is that there's a lot of distrust between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Historically, the Jews have really stayed separate from the Gentiles and vice versa. Remember when Peter was called by God to evangelize Cornelius, the Roman centurion, he goes into Cornelius's house, he presents the gospel. The Gentiles in Cornelius's house come to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit falls on them and Peter goes back to Jerusalem and recounts that to the church there and they take him to task. They say, you actually went into a Gentile house. You associated with people that eat pig. That's unclean and therefore you're unclean. So there was a lot of ceremonial issues there and a lot of distrust between the two. And only when Peter said, hey, they received the Holy Spirit just like we received the Holy Spirit, then the Jewish Christians said, oh, they're meant to come to faith in Christ exactly the same way as we as Gentiles are. So Paul has been preaching that Jew and Gentile are one. In Christ, there's no distinction. God has no partiality. God makes no distinction between people, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, doesn't matter. In Christ, we are one. In Christ, we do life together. The issue has been for centuries, the Jews have thought that they were the only people of God because God gave them the law at Mount Sinai and said, I have set you apart as a special people. You represent me to planet Earth. No one else has that privilege except the Jews. And now, of course, Jesus Christ has established his church and the church is carrying the gospel to the lost, uh, whether they're Jewish or Gentile Christians, doesn't matter. So <clears throat> the Jewish Christians are having a hard time with the Gentile Christians and vice versa, a lot of distrust. The second problem is the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are having a real hard time with the Corinthians. And you would have a real hard time with the Corinthians too because the Corinthians were really acting badly. They're engaged in all sorts of sexual sins, prostitution, incest, it's really, really bad. They're taking each other to court. They're suing each other. They come to the Lord's Supper and they're drunk in church, right? They, they're proud of their tolerance of sin. There's a lot of sin going on in the church. And instead of confronting it, they say, what's so cool? We tolerate this sin. You know, it's all right. We're open-minded, right? Sounds kind of like today. The church services were out of control. People were interrupting each other, speaking in tongues, just babbling. I mean, it was really a mess. It was chaotic. And of course, after Paul had left the Corinthian church and gone to Ephesus to found another church, false teachers had shown up infiltrated the church, so it was a lot of confusion. I'm sure that some of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem wondered if the Corinthians were even Christians. I mean, you're behaving worse than the world. It was pretty much of a mess. Paul, uh, Rob's gonna show you kind of a map to give you a geographical overview. This is Paul's third missionary journey. This is the timeline within which we are in. And the first followers of Jesus were Jews who lived in Jerusalem. Obviously, Jesus was uh, uh, crucified in Jerusalem, and that's where the church was founded uh, in, in the first chapter of Acts. The church in Jerusalem is in really deep trouble. They had come to faith in Christ, and they were severely persecuted. Many were actually driven out of Jerusalem in the first four or five chapters of Acts. They carried the gospel into Gentile communities. But a lot of Christians in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, really had nowhere to go. Many of them were pilgrims. They had come to celebrate Passover and uh, they were persecuted. They were killed, many of them. They were jailed. They were terminated from their jobs. They were discriminated against. They were socially ostracized. 
So there's several thousand Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that are really, really under the gun as a result of their faith in Christ. They don't have food, clothing, and shelter. They're living on the poverty line, and Paul knows that. He's aware of their physical needs. He's aware that Jews and Gentiles historically have not trusted each other. So he's got a solution for that. His plan is to go to the, all the Gentile churches that he has founded and ask them to give financial support for the basic needs of their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. He's telling them that Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are really under the gun, really in trouble, and you can minister to them by giving financially. So he wants them to financially give to relieve the poverty of the Jerusalem church, but also to forge a bond of love between these two groups, Jews and Gentiles. So he's proposed this to the Gentile church over a year ago. And the church in Corinth had said, baby, we are all in on that. We're good to go. We're going to give. We think this is a good idea. So Paul goes to Ephesus to found a church there. That's right near Miletus. You won't see Ephesus on this map because in the third missionary journey, Paul never actually stopped. But Miletus was the port city about eight miles away from Ephesus. So that's right near where it is. So when Paul is over there founding a church, he spent three years in Ephesus. False teachers come to Corinth and they stir up a revolt against Paul. And these false teachers go, you don't want to listen to this guy, Paul. He's not the real deal. We are the real deal. So as a result of this really false teaching, Paul is being set aside by the church and the giving is being set aside as well. However, the church is in northern Macedonia, that's northern Greece. You're going to see it behind me, Thessalonica, Berea, those churches. They had stepped up and they were really giving an enormous amount. As a matter of fact, in the previous chapter, Paul says that these churches in northern Macedonia, northern Greece, even though they were really, really poor, begged Paul for the privilege of giving to relieve the suffering of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And in chapters 8 and 9, where we're going to be today, Paul writes the Corinthians to encourage them to keep their promises to financially help the suffering church in Jerusalem. And he reminds them of the benefits of giving. The benefits of giving. And he states the general principle of giving, and he uses an agricultural analogy. So if you turn to 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, that's where we're going to start. Verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Here's the principle. You reap what you sow. More than you sow and later than you sow. If you understand this principle and apply it, it will change your life. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow and you reap later than you sow. So Paul is equating planting or sowing. Sowing is planting, right? It's farming. You're planting seeds with giving. Paul tells us that when you plant seeds, it just looks like you're losing the seed. You really don't lose the seed. When you're giving money to God, you're not really losing that money. It's not gone. It hasn't disappeared. Just like the seed grows and returns a crop, so God will multiply and grow our giving into a harvest. So what he's talking about is the iron law of the universe, the law of cause, and effect. And he says the law of cause and effect works in your life as well as on the farm. And he says if you want a large crop on the farm, what's a really good precondition? What do you have to do if you want a large crop on the farm? You have to sow a lot of seeds. If you want a big crop, you plant a lot of seeds. Now Jesus had taught this exact same principle way back in Luke 6:38. And he tells the disciples this Sermon on the Mount. He says, give and what? It will be given to you in what measure? He says, they will pour into your lap a good measure. How good? Pressed down, shaken together, running over. Right? 
Why is that? For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. As you give, God ensures the crop. Now, there are three major principles here at work, and it's imperative that you understand them. First of all is the principle of identity. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. If you plant corn, you get if you plant wheat, you get. If you plant radishes, you get. If you plant love, you get. If you plant $10 bills, you get. Dirty money. Yeah, I can hear. It works for everything until we get to money. Then we get to cash, we go, whoa, oh, oh. You can't give money away and expect a return. Are you kidding me? That principle breaks down when it comes to money. That's not what the Bible says. You reap in the same kind as you sow. Everything reproduces after its kind. Genesis 1, right? Reproduces after its kind. If you breed cows, you get... Okay, you don't get pigs, right? This makes life very predictable. You only plant what you want to harvest, correct? If you don't want to harvest it, don't plant it. Make sense? Now you say, okay, Brad, I get that in agriculture, but I don't know if that works in life. Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. Don't get lied to. God is not mocked for whatever you sow, you reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit reaps eternal life. You cannot sow evil and harvest good. You cannot sow selfishness and reap selflessness. If you sow evil, you will reap evil. Haman. Remember Haman, the Hitler of the Old Testament. He built a gallows to hang Mordecai on. And he got hanged on the same gallows. David committed adultery with another man's wife. And later on, his own son Absalom committed adultery with David's wives. Jacob lied to his dad to get the birthright. And later on, he was lied to by his uncle and conned into marrying a woman he didn't even love. Some of the problems we deal with today are a result of the choices and the consequences we make yesterday. Now, you all know people, none of you here would ever do this, but you all know people that have been sowing the seeds of sin in their life. You know what you need to do for them? Pray for crop failure. That's what you need to do, because there's a lot of seeds that have been planted, right? So Paul says, as you sow, you will reap. If you sow by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, you'll reap the things of the Spirit. In other words, you'll reap those spiritually good things. Now, the truth of it is, all of us have sown the seeds of sin in our lives, correct? And thought, word, and deed. Now, the good news is, is that many, many, actually, I'm persuaded most of the time, God in his mercy intervenes between the cause, what we have sown, and the sin, the consequences we deserve. Everybody in this room has not gotten anywhere near what we deserve. Yes? If sowing and reaping worked 100% of the time and the mercy of God did not come between what we have sown and what we reaped, we would all be dead. So God in his mercy most of the time intervenes between the cause, the sin we've sown, and the effect, the consequence we deserve. On the other hand, sometimes God in his infinite wisdom lets us reap exactly what we have sown so that we will learn the foolishness of sin and that we will learn to trust and obey him instead of trusting and obeying our brilliance, which got us into this cesspool, right? So you reap what you sow. And here's the, the corollary to that is, if you don't like what you're reaping, for heaven's sake, sow something different, 
right? If you don't like what's coming downstream, go upstream and find out what's going in the river of your life and go on, well, maybe I need to do something different, right? Just saying. Just a thought. You don't have to do it, but it's a thought, right? Second, the principle of increase. Not only do you reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow. Paul says if you sow bountifully, you're going to reap really bountifully. And the word bountifully here literally means lavish abundance. I mean, it's a multiplication. It's almost a geometric. In this life, you always get back more than what you put out. Sometimes you get back more bad. Sometimes you get back more good. But it says, number one, you're going to reap what you sow. And number two, you're going to reap more than what you sow. When you plant one corn seed, do you get more than one corn seed back? You get a plant that produces multiple ears of corn, and on each ear of corn, how many seeds are there? <clears throat> Probably hundreds. I've never counted them, but I thought about that. You know, when we do corn on the cob, I'm not counting, I'm just eating, you know, so it's, it's just not something I've ever done. But I wondered, I, it's probably hundreds of seeds on each ear, and each plant has multiple ears of corn. So God is a, a lavish God, right? You, you plant one corn seed, you get this. One apple seed can grow a tree that produces enough seeds to plant an orchard. So the principle of multiplication clearly works. In the, uh, in the agricultural realm. None of us would plant a grain of wheat if all you got is one grain back, right? You, you know, the whole point of planting is to harvest a lot more than what you planted. And you say, well, Brad, how does this work in life? I'm going to give you something really, really simple that you can do. Because all of us can do it. Our words are like seeds, we plant words very easily, don't we? Words kind of just fall out of our mouths, right? Every time you speak, your words sprout and grow into plants that reproduce. And we see this negatively in criticism and positively in praise. I am amazed at the power of simple words like please, and thank you. How often do you hear people just use that word and mean it? It sounds so simple. They're so powerful. So are words like, that was really stupid. That's a powerful word, right? Or idiot. I mean, you know, I know you think that. Many of you said that in the car driving here this morning, right? The problem is you heard it because you said it. Right? So when we criticize others, what it does, it grows the plant of self-righteousness. It grows the plant of pride. It grows the plant that I'm smarter than they are and everybody who disagrees me with is a fool. Right? When we praise others, it plants the plant of generosity. It grows the plant of love. How do you feel when someone criticizes you? Do you think they're stupid? Do you think they're stupid? How do you feel when someone praises you? Think about your words like plants. Think about your words like seeds. When you plant them, they grow. Here's the application. It's real simple. Look for the good and praise it. Look for the good and praise it. I know with some people you have to look a long time. Jesus looked a long time for you. And he didn't save you because he found any good. He saved you because he is good. Amen? And we're to pass that love along to others. Our words are powerful, so plant them carefully because they multiply. They multiply. So the third principle is the principle of interval. You not only reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, and you reap later than you sow. I'm always intrigued by fairy tales. And to my knowledge, only in the fairy tale of Jack and the Beanstalk can you throw bean seeds out a window, and the very next morning you've got this giant beanstalk. Overnight, right? It takes 
time to grow a crop. It takes patience to wait for a crop. You know, you're never going to harvest a crop of carrots if you dig them up every day just to see how they're doing. <laughs> Let me go see how they're doing. Let's dig them out, pull them out, see how they're growing. You know, there's a season to plant and there's a season to harvest. And of course, we in our culture, we look at instant everything. We look at uh, family life problems presented and solved in 45 minutes. At the most, a four-hour mini-series. I mean, can't you solve everything in a four-hour mini-series? They can do a whole lifetime in four hours. The truth of it is, most of our lives are a lot messier, and it takes a lot longer to fix issues, right? Rome wasn't built in the day. We know that. You don't become a world-class athlete overnight. You don't become a great scholar overnight. Jeff and Kelly know this. They're going to really find out. Great marriages are not finished when you say, I do. That's when you begin the work. It's joyful work, but it's work. Yes? If all you do is take out of the marriage box and you don't put anything in, sooner or later the battery runs out. Right? That's just the beginning. How many months does it take to grow a baby into an optimal birth weight? Nine months. Take some time, right? How many years does it take to get them from that to a responsible adult? <laughs> Answer. We don't know. We're still waiting to find out. Some of your parents are still waiting too, and they're in heaven. It's a process, it's a journey. It takes time for Jesus Christ to grow in us and mature us, right? Maturing is a process, it's not a destination. We're gonna be maturing until Christ comes or he takes us home. The problem is, is because we don't see immediate results of our decisions, many times we think that they don't matter. The reality is daily decisions do add up. My dad made a decision to smoke at about age 15. And he got away with it for 55 years. And then he got diagnosed with lung cancer. If you want to get into shape, can you go to the gym just once? Wouldn't that be nice? No, you're going to have to stay at it and stay at it and stay at it and stay at it over the rest of your life. It depends on what you're trying to build. If you want to grow an onion plant, it takes about nine weeks. You can get a reasonable onion nine, ten weeks. If you want a hundred foot tall oak tree, you better plan on a couple centuries. What are you trying to build, right? Way back in the day when I was a musician, I learned early on that if you wanted to get better as a musician, you have to practice every single day. Every day, every day, every day, every day. Paul reminds us <clears throat> in Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart, that means quit, in doing good, for in due time. We will reap if we do not grow weary. Question, when is in due time? We don't know. We know that when God says in due time, in the fullness of time, when God says it's time, it's time. We know what in due time is when you're growing a baby. It's nine months, plus or minus, right? You get kind of a clock going here. But the other kinds of things, when you're doing good, you're doing good, you're doing good, and you're going, I'm planting these seeds, I'm planting these seeds, nothing's coming up, I'm not seeing any results. Why would I keep doing this? Paul says, stay at it. The harvest is coming. It comes later. You have to understand, and I know you do, most of the payday for us, 99.9%, .9 comes where? In heaven, not here. We walk by faith, right? 
So don't stop doing good. It adds up over time. Spiritual fruit takes time to mature just like physical fruit. One of my favorite parables is the parable of the sower and the seed. The farmer, right? The farmer's got a bag of seed and the farmer walks around, scatters seed, right? And there's how many kinds of soil? Four kinds of soil. You got the hard soil, you got the weedy soil, you got the rocky soil, and then you got the good soil. The birds take the seed and steal it off the, rock, off the hard soil by the roadside, right? The rocky soil is so thin that it sprouts, but it doesn't have any sustaining roots, so it dies. The weeds choke out the good soil, and the, I mean, the weeds choke out the, the seed out of the, out of the weedy soil, and there is some good soil and it grows a crop. What's the most interesting thing? What does the farmer do? Keeps on sowing. You never see the farmer chasing the birds. Those dirty birds stealing my seed. He never gets distracted. The farmer keeps on sowing. It's a good lesson for us. We should keep on doing the things that God's called us to do. It's always too soon to quit. Keep doing the right things regardless because God keeps track. Now these principles don't just work on the farm, they work on all of life. You reap more than you sow, what you sow, more than you sow, and later than you sow. Now if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll give you the street vernacular. What goes around, comes around. These, this principle of giving works whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, or whether you understand it or not. Now, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about their promise to help support the Jerusalem Christians who are poverty-stricken. He reminds them that it's not just what you give, it's how and why you give. Verse 7, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or in a compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He's talking about why and how you give. Here's the principle. The greatest benefit of joyful giving is experiencing more of God's love. The greatest benefit of joyful giving is experiencing more of God's love. Every farmer has the freedom to plant as much or as little seeds as possible, and God trusts you to give as much or little as you decide. He doesn't tell you, he doesn't give you a percentage, that's your call. Paul says that no matter how much you give, there are three characteristics that probably should characterize it. Number one, it should be deliberate. Number two, it should be voluntary. And number three, it should be joyful. He says purpose, purpose in your heart. Give what you've purposed. That means to choose beforehand. That means to think about it, to plan, to pray about it. Uh, don't give thoughtlessly and don't give impulsively. How many of you have got solicited by fundraisers this week? Multiple times, right? Everybody wants a hand in your pocket. Everybody wants you to give money for this. Everybody's got the greatest and latest cause. And the truth of it is, there's always going to be more needs than you can possibly meet. Always. So you're going to have to say no probably far more often than you will say yes. How do you decide what you give to? You could talk to God about it. A thought, right? Just ask. God, it's your money. I'm just managing it. You own it all. I just managed this stuff for a few decades. I'm here on earth, a very few decades. Where do you want me to give? Never give because you feel guilty. Never, guilt, never give because you feel pressured. Never give because you feel like, I got to get this person off my back. So you give to shut them up, right? God says, it's not a good reason to give. Plan it, pray about it, be purposeful about it. Number two, don't give grudgingly. This is called pain in the pocketbook, right? For some people, their money is so precious to them that parting with any of it creates grief and loss like the death of a loved one. I mean, they can't bear to be separated from even one George Washington because it's so precious, man. I mean, this stuff is like, you know, you can't have enough of this stuff, right? That's grudging. I mean, you give, but it, man, it's like, oh. He says, don't give under compulsion. How many of you have ever been to a dentist? 
Ever had a tooth pulled? Ever had a tooth pulled with no anesthetic? That's compulsion, pulling a tooth without anesthetic. He says, give with joy. If giving causes you pain, check out your love muscle. You probably love the money more than the person. What do we call people who love money? Midas was a... Midas, King Midas was a... Miser. Somebody knows their fairy tales. Wow, I'm impressed. I'm living it. <laughs> a fairy tale. You do bear a resemblance to King Midas, yes, that's true. You're just sucking up to Carolyn, I know what that's about. So God says, don't give purposely, don't give grudgingly, don't give under compulsion, give cheerfully. The Greek word is hilarion. It means hilariously. It means give with great joy. Give with abandonment. Today we would say, give until you're LOL. Give until you're laughing out loud. How many of you give with any semblance of joy? We got a couple honest ones. And you say, why would you give with joy? The reality is giving should make you glad, not sad, right? Giving should make you feel good, not bad. If you hate to give, don't give. Don't buy your grandchild a birthday gift and then complain at the party about how much it cost. Right? I mean, you go, oh. When you whine about the cost of a gift, what you're telling everyone is that you value the money more than your grandchild. People go, oh, that's really bad form. You think? Remember Ebenezer Scrooge and Charles Dickens? How many of you ever read A Christmas Carol way back in the day when you actually read things because you had to? Mr. Bah Humbug. He coveted money so much it really corroded his soul. And I mean, it cost him virtually every relationship he had. Here's something you can write down. Misers are miserable. Givers are glad. I have never yet met a miser that was happy, and I have never yet met a generous person that was not joyful. You understand the principle of that? So if you're miserable, try giving. And I don't mean just giving money. That's easy. Give money, make them go away. You have three things to give. Time, talents, and treasure. Treasure, money, is the easy one. You give money, there's no investment. I'll tell you what's expensive. Time. Because time is all you have. And some of you have a lot less than others. I'm one of the ones that didn't have much left. But time, talents, and treasures are all things that you can offer to the Lord. And when we talk about giving, that's what we're talking about, not just money. And God says, I give you a return on that investment. So you say, why would anybody give to God with gladness? Well, when you give to God joyfully, it says he has a special love for the cheerful giver. You experience more of God's love. Now, we know that God loves the whole world, John 3, 16. We know that God loves his own children specially, but this is a special gift of love from God to the generous giver. One of the reasons why when you give, it should bring you joy. It's always an adventure to see what supernatural miracle God will do with your money. I know what you can do with this stuff. And the answer is you think this stuff brings you joy. This is a tool. It's just a tool, right? It's a test, and it's also a testimony. But when you give some of this stuff, and even more importantly, your time and your talents, it's the adventure is seeing what God is going to miraculously do that's going to last for all eternity. He creates far more than we possibly can. So giving is a phenomenal privilege to see what supernatural, eternal things God's going to do. Now, many people, many, many, if not most people, struggle with joyful giving because there's always this worry. If I give it to God, there won't be enough left for me. For heaven's sakes, Brad, there's not enough left for me now, and I'm not giving yet. So if I give, I'm going to have even less. 
I don't like that equation. Verse 8. How do you deal with that? And God is able to make all grace abound to you. I want you to underline some words here. Get your pen out. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. A lot of superlatives in there. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Here's the principle. When we give... God gives us more to give. When we give, God gives us more to hoard. I uh, don't think it says that. God blesses us in proportion to how we bless others. You want to be a, re a channel, not a reservoir. God prospers you and I not to stash, but to share, right? If you look at most of the world right now, you and I are living in la-la land. Serious la-la land. Number one, you slept in a bed. Number two, you had air conditioning. Number three, you had a roof and a door you could lock. When you got out of bed this morning, you looked in a mirror. You didn't like what you see, but you had one. Number five, you had running water. It's called the sink to wash your face, a toilet, blah, 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 blah. You go and you walk into the kitchen, you open the fridge, and there's not just food. There's more food than you can choose from. You have variety of food. You don't eat the same sorghum ball every single day. I mean, we live in la-la land. God says, be the Sea of Galilee, don't be the Dead Sea. Rob's going to show you a map. The Sea of Galilee gets water from the Jordan River. Ultimately, there are three major headwaters of that that ultimately all come from the uh, Mount Hermon, uh, uh, meltwater that comes off the top of that. So the Sea of Galilee gets water from the Jordan River and gives water to the Dead Sea, right down the bottom, right? The Dead Sea gets water from the Jordan, I mean, from the Sea of Galilee and gives water to who? No one. No one. As a result of that, the concentration of the minerals in that water has killed everything. There is no life in that water. Some of you have been there, right? How many of you have ever floated in the Dead Sea? Yeah. Pretty amazing stuff. How many of you have ever drunk the water? I mean, if it floats you, it's got to be good stuff, right? Mm, I think you might lose a little weight if you drunk some of that stuff because it's coming right back out, right? Here's the principle. When you stop giving, you start dying. The Sea of Galilee is alive because it receives, gives, receives, and gives. Receives and gives. Receives. It's a channel. The Dead Sea is dead because it hoards. When you stop giving, you start dying. We struggle with giving because we don't believe that God is the source of everything and we don't believe that God is able to make all grace abound to us. Grace means gift. When you cheerfully give, God provides more than you need. And I don't mean just money, although that's part of it. He provides for you way beyond money so that you can give the surplus away to those who need it. You all here today have resources, homes, automobiles. You have health. Do you think that health's an accident? You all have relationships with people that need to know Jesus. Do you think those relationships are an accident? They're by design. God has put these resources in your life so you can give. When we hoard God's blessings, we become spiritually constipated. That's not fun. That's misery. Yes? We're all old enough to know what I'm talking about. Some people can't receive any more blessings from God because their lives are filled to the brim by clutching and grasping what God has already given them. The story is told about a Zen master and his new pupil. The Zen master serves tea from a teapot into a teacup for the student. 
He fills the student's cup to the brim and he keeps pouring. And the tea goes over the saucer and over the table and runs on the floor. And the student says, stop pouring, the cup is full. Can't you see that? And the master says, so it is with you. You come here full of yourself and full of your own ideas. I cannot teach you until you first empty your cup. You get more blessings from God only when you empty your cup by sharing it with others and stop hoarding God's gifts for yourself. Jesus said, it is more blessed to receive than to give. Is that not what it says? What's it say? Oh, it's more blessed to give than receive. How do you believe that? How many of you are practicing that? Yeah, talking is easy. Not, doing is tough. And I'm speaking to myself. Every time I preach to you, remember, Brad is the number one idiot in line to receive the message. You have to understand that. I've heard it for seven days before I give it to you on the seventh day. To my knowledge, there's only one verse in the Bible where God dares you to test him. Only one. Malachi 3.10. God commands Israel and he says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing until it overflows. See, some folks don't believe that God's reservoir is big enough. Some people don't believe that God loves them enough to bless them until it overflows. Some people would rather hang on to their money because they believe that money will bring them more satisfaction than Jesus. Wow. There's only one way to find out. Try it. Try it. Jesus says, test me. Test me. Prove it. Prove me. You pray and ask God to show you where he wants you to give and how much he wants you to give. No one can tell you how much to give. There is no rule. That's between you and Jesus. Try it. Give hilariously. Trust God for the blessing. By the way, this is not a contract with God. This is not a divine let's make a deal. This is not health and wealth. This is not peace and prosperity. This is not God is my Santa Claus servant philosophy. This is trusting that God is your loving Heavenly Father who desires to bring others to Himself and bless you for your generosity as the channel of His blessing. This is loving God more than money because having more of God is better than having more money. Yes? Paul says, when you give generously, verse 11, you will be enriched in everything for the purpose of liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, the ministry of giving, they, other Christians, will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Here's the principle. Your giving does four things. It meets needs. It proves your faith. It brings God glory. And it attracts praying friends. When you give generously, you meet the needs of God's people. The financial gifts, by the way, the Corinthians gave for the Jerusalem church were not luxury. It was for basic needs, food, clothing, shelter. I mean, some of these folks, a lot of them were on the street. They were dirt poor. Many people went to sleep hungry. And when you were a Jerusalem Christian, you always went to sleep hungry. And many of them didn't even have a bed to sleep in. Let me give you a little perspective. A few years ago, Mother Teresa got the Nobel Peace Prize, right, for her work. When she died, she owned three things. Three. A bed, one changing of clothing, and a bucket to do her laundry in. That's it. That's not luxury. Jerusalem was probably at least that broke. 
So when we're talking about meeting the saints' needs, our brothers and sisters, we're not talking about luxury. We're talking about keeping them alive. So when we give material goods, it not only meets physical needs, it produces thanksgiving and glory to God. Because those who receive those goods are grateful. And those who receive those goods thank God for your loving generosity. You may not understand this, but your giving draws people closer to Jesus. Luke 16 is a very, very clear teaching, and I don't have time to go into all of it, that when you give, you make friends for yourself in heaven. There are people that are going to be in heaven because you gave. And they will thank you when you get there. Because your giving made it possible for them to hear the gospel and respond to it. So think about it from an eternal standpoint. Not only does it meet needs and produce thanksgiving to God, which is the point, giving proves the reality of your salvation. How do you know someone is saved, really saved? By what they say or by what they do? Jesus said that people who hear what God says but don't do what he says are like people who build their house on the beach. The sand, right? When the storm comes, what's going to happen to the house? It's going to get knocked down. Because a life built on talk is a life built on sand. And sand is unstable. And talk is cheap. You can say you believe anything. So what? Right? On the other hand, Jesus said that some people hear what God says and they act on it. They actually do what God says to do. And Jesus said they're like people who build their houses on the solid rock foundation. When the storms come, and by the way, the storms will come. Some of us in this room are in the middle of hurricanes right now. Your life will stand firm if it's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So generous giving demonstrates to the world and to yourself that you really do trust in Jesus more than you trust in your money. By the way, Solomon said in Proverbs that money is like a bird with wings. Have you noticed that money just flies away? There's just bills and then there's bills you didn't know you were going to have. Right? And they kind of fly in, and when they land, they take the money and they fly away. And you go, where's all these birds taking up? That's the nature of life. But God can supply and will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Our confidence is in him, not the money. Last thing that Paul says, when you give, it enlarges your circle of friends who will pray for you. When you help others because you love Jesus, it deepens friendships. Friends pay, pray for friends. By the way, someone who prays for you regularly, that's a real friend. That is a gift from God to you. When you give to others, not just with money, but you give your time and your talents and your treasure, it demonstrates the love of Jesus and that attracts people to the Savior. You know one of the neatest things when you generously give, you know who you're acting like? You're acting like God because God is a generous giver, right? Enormously generous. He's the ultimate expression of his giving. In Romans 8.32 it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So you look at the bills in your life, you look at the health issues in your life, you look at the job issues in your life, you look at the deductible that's crazy and the copay that's stupid and the car that's broke and the grandkids that need money and the kids that are got lost their lease because they lost their job and you go, God, you better have a big bank account. Is this reservoir big enough for your needs? Uh-huh. Beyond. If he laid down the life of his son, don't you think he cares about the money and the bills? Of course. He's your father. So when we give, we're demonstrating that we love God more than money. We trust God more than money. And it, here's what giving really proves. 
Giving proves that you believe that God plus less money is more than you plus more money. See, I used to think, okay, God, I got a hundred bucks. I can't make it on a hundred bucks. You want me to make it on less than a hundred bucks by giving you some money. Really? If I give you 10%, whatever it happens to be, you want me to live on 90%. And the Holy Spirit said, you don't understand. When you give, I come with the 90%. Do you think my blessing and my wisdom on your life plus 90 cents is smarter than you alone plus 100 cents? I used to argue with him about that. Well, I think I'm pretty smart. Trust me with 100 cents. He says, you're not good with a dollar. How am I going to give you 100 bucks? Right? Can I trust you with a dollar? We overrate what we see and we underrate the blessing of the Lord. It's not about money, it's about our hearts. See, God doesn't need our money. He's created it all. We need to give for our own souls. When you give, God gives more to you in order to give more. And you've heard it said, and I am living proof, Marin and I, you cannot outgive God. His shovel is bigger than yours. The more you shovel out, the more he shovels in. And he gives you far more than money. He gives you, what he, he gives you whatever he knows you need at the moment. And it may not be more money at that point. It may be more struggle. It may be more friends. It may be more of him. Because best of all, he's given us himself. What's the last verse of this chapter say? Verse 15. Thanks be to God for what? His indescribable gift. And who's that? Jesus. He gave us himself. May we give in that manner. Tom's going to come up in a couple minutes. Actually, he's going to come up now and lead us in our prayer and praise. Let me review. Point one. You reap what you sow, more than you sow, and later than you sow. I don't need to put the corollary in here. So for heaven's sake, sow good things and sow lots of good things and keep on sowing lots of good things, godly things. Number two, the greatest benefit of joyful giving is experiencing more of God's love. Priceless. Number three, when we give, God gives us more to give. God blesses us in proportion to how we bless others. And lastly, your giving meets needs, proves your faith, brings God glory, and attracts praying friends. Now, there are 2,350 verses in the Bible about money, and God talks about it so much because it's a part of our everyday life. Pray this week that the Lord will show you what he wants you to do, not based on what Brad said, but what the word of God says and what he's calling you to do. Does that make sense? I love you all. Now that you know. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 930 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at MANA, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.